1: Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, and it's Callum Orcas. Welcome to our latest episode, which is a celebration of the 30th anniversary of the 1991 motorsport season, which is also the subject of a dedicated feature package special in this week's Autosport magazine. 1991 was rather a special year. In Formula 1, there were new races in France and Spain, the arrival of future F1 legends Michael Schumacher and Mika Hakkinen, new points allocations and the championship's first stop-go penalty, plus your humble podcast host was born. But the year's F1 campaign will forever be remembered as the one where Ayrton Senna scored his third title triumph in four years with McLaren, which picked up its fourth Constructors crown in a row. And indeed, we shall discuss the merits of this next statement in this episode, Senna's finest F1 performance over a season, as he and McLaren took on a resurgent Williams team that would go on to dominate F1 as McLaren's fortunes waned. That year also contained none of the driving controversies that had blighted Senna's previous seasons, as he left few points on the table over the course of the campaign. There was also turmoil at Ferrari, which had come into 1991 expecting to challenge for the title after a strong showing the year before, as well as dramatic innovation in the World Sports Car Championship, an epic title battle in the World Rally Championship, and exciting scenes in the junior single seater formulas. So joining me to discuss all of that are three special guests who each contributed a feature to this week's Autosport magazine on the subject of 1991. We've got Autosport's chief editor Kevin Turner, former Autosport editor-in-chief Damian Smith, and Charles Bradley, global editor-in-chief at motorsport.com. So everyone, welcome to the Autosport podcast. Uh, but Kev, I just wanted to ask you, first of all, as we often do on the podcast when we talk about what we've, uh, what we've come to produce for the magazine and for the website, why exactly have we picked the 30th anniversary of the 1991 season as something to celebrate with a special issue and indeed a special podcast?
0: Uh, well, as you know, I'm always looking for anniversaries, anything in the past that uh, we can look at and write about and talk about. Um, and uh, so obviously 1991 was something I looked at. And the, the more I thought about it, the more I looked at it, the more I thought it was a really interesting season. Um, you know, people tend to remember 1989 and 1990 probably more because of the Suzuka shunts between it and Senna and Alain Prost, and then people remember 92 with Nigel Mansell and the FW14B, and 91 sometimes gets a bit forgotten. Um, but the more I you know, I watched the season reviews and did a lot of reading of the reports and went back over and thought there were definitely enough stories. Um, that was worth looking back on and of course most of the people that were involved um it's obviously not Senna sadly but most of the people that were involved are, st- are still around so um, yeah it seemed worth revisiting. Damien
1: welcome back to the Autosport podcast it's good to have you with us how are you doing?
2: Very well thank you very
1: well yes nice to see you all. Indeed, obviously we are uh, recording remotely as the coronavirus pandemic uh, continues. But it's a nice, uh, it's a nice Tuesday evening. Autosport magazine has gone to press. Kev looks rather stressed. He's got what looks like a big bottle of wine beside him. As I said, uh, very smugly, I'm doing dry January, but I won't bring that up again. Excellent. Well, Kev, let's uh, let's let's start with the the fight at the front in Formula One. As I said, it was you know a, a famous year for for both McLaren and Williams. Um. And in terms of the, the the ultimate success going to Ayrton Center and McLaren, lots was made of the fact that he wins the first four races and then sort of hangs on rather as Williams hits its stride later in the year. But is that perhaps an oversimplification of what happened
0: that year? It's one of those things that when you look back and you go, oh, the first four races and it was his to lose sort of thing, and it was just defending that, that lead. Um, and obviously winning four races off the bat helps, but... Uh, he needed more than that because after Nigel Mansell had scored three straight wins in um, France, Britain, and Germany, uh, he was within eight points of Senna. Williams had overtaken McLaren in the Constructors' Championship, uh, and the momentum was definitely with them. Like Williams were going to win the championship at that point, and Senna knew it. Um, and he did an awful lot of work behind the scenes, pushing Honda, pushing McLaren, both of whom threw everything at it. You know, McLaren took five different chassis to Silverstone for the British Grand Prix. Shell were doing lots of different fuels, um, your different specs of engine. Sometimes Honda had a couple of different specs of engine at each race as well. Um, And they really did need to bounce back. And for me, a key moment is the the Hungarian Grand Prix when uh, it was a combination of of Honda had a new engine. They were able to rev it to 14,800 RPM in short bursts. Senna used it to take pole. Head of Williams is well ahead of them. Uh, and then basically held him off for the rest of the race. Um, they were probably quicker in the race, he thought so, but he'd managed to use that trap position to win and it stemmed the tide. Uh, he then got a lucky uh, a lucky win, if you like, uh, in the Belgian Grand Prix. Um, but the reason I would put put it forward that this was Senna's greatest title is I think there's only one race he gives away points himself and that's the Spanish Grand Prix. Where he has a spin, made the wrong tie choice, um, was very off form, very unlike him. I'd, I'd say if you go through every other result that year, he has the car at least, if not a bit better than the place it should be in. Uh, so that was a championship that would have been very easy for him to lose. And given that he used to clatter into back markers in previous years, he could well have done so, but there was none of that. There were no errors, really. Um, so I think it's a, I think it was a superb campaign from him. Well, I would normally side with Prost uh, when it comes to Senna, Prost clashes, because I think Senna used to did take, did, take the mick. But I, I've watched that a few times. I think it's a bit of, it's a whole lot of nothing really, isn't it? There is, theres isn't pretty much enough room on there and Prost has a bit of a rubbish lock-up, goes down the escape road and should still get back in the race and just be a few seconds behind centre anyway uh, and then, uh, then stalls the car. So, yeah, my sympathies normally were with Prost in the centre-Prost clashes, but I thought that one was one where, yeah... I thought senator didn't really do anything particularly outrageously, um, unless anyone else disagrees strongly with that one. So, I mean, it was really a continuation of their previous two years rivalry, wasn't it? It was a very minor incident, really. It was more the context of, of what had happened before. And obviously, Prost hadn't had the opportunity to be at the front very much that year. Um, so, yeah, a bit of frustration on his part, dealing with the Ferrari shambles that we'll come to later. And Senna was never going to be easy to pass anyway. So, yeah, it, it all kicked off again because of that.
2: I feel the only downside of 91 really was that Prost wasn't really a factor through the season and if you're going to argue that anything took away from that title for Senna it was that he didn't really have Prost to contend with and obviously I I remember at the time there was an element of relief almost that uh, the intensity of those those three seasons of Senna versus Prost were kind of over for a while because actually it was starting to get a little bit um tiresome um, given the controversies and the, um, the incessant sort of unpleasantness of that that time, um, which we hadn't really seen in Formula One, I think, to that intensity. Um, but in 91, you did feel that suddenly there was something a little bit missing, that Prost wasn't a contender, and that actually it ended up being Mansell versus Senna. It wasn't quite the same for me.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's entirely fair point. And you always want... But well, It's his only season, only full season, apart from obviously the, the races with in 1980 with the terrible McLaren. He didn't win a Grand Prix. Um, but I think it probably is what F1 needed, um, was a cleaner fight. And actually, Senna makes the point at the end of the season that it was a, a cleaner fight. I mean, he's, there's a sort of pop calling bet, kettle black moment earlier on this season when he has a bit of a go at Mansell being aggressive in Portugal, I think, which seems a bit a bit ridiculous. But otherwise, it was yeah, it was a very clean fight, and I think it is probably what the what the world champion needed. But yes, if there is an asterisk, I suppose across ninety one, it's that Senna didn't really have to worry about about Frost. Oh, I mean, sitting here with our 2021 hats on,
1: I think I, I think Formula One would do anything to have a, a repeat bit of constant title fight niggle between various drivers, considering the steamrolling success that Mercedes has had in recent seasons. And um, but let let let's stick with Senna and his title of success. I mean, and yeah, Damien, where would you rank uh, rank things for Senna after the end of 1991
2: season? I remember thinking at the time, Alex, I'm still getting over the fact that you were born that year. That's that's outrageous. Um... I
1: thought I better address the elephant in the room quite. early in that yeah, uh, yeah.
2: In june 1991
1: i arrived so uh, your memories are the ones that are important here not mine
2: which of which there were none just just for context i was 17 in 91 and i remember i was at the british grand prix that year and um uh my feeling about it at the time was senna had always been the bad boy in terms of british motorsport because um of the controversies that he'd caused over time but before the pro senna um, years there was also you know clashes with mansell in 87 at spa i'm thinking of at the chicane and it was kind of uh senna was seen as a troublemaker and uh you know the 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 dick dastardly of formula one in many ways i think in in terms of a a british viewpoint um and i had a a grudging respect for him i would say through that period as, as a young impressionable young teenager i'd say um by 91, I think that grudging respect became just simply respect because you thought this is a guy who's nearly really up against it. He um, he could see during that season the way the wind was turning. Um, the Williams were on the rise. Um, and by the end of the season, he certainly knew that he was um, basically in the wrong car. Um, but he won the title anyway. And as Kev quite rightly said in his uh, part earlier on, that um, you know he did everything he could to win that title and did it fairly, uh, which was a relief, I think, to everyone. And um, I think there was a, a new respect for Senna after 91.
0: I, I would say the only campaign of his that you would put up against that would be 93. Um, but I think that's slightly playing a different game in that he was, he wasn't really, okay, he did lead the championship at some points, but he wasn't really in championship fight. He was almost in a Max Verstappen pot shots. Let's see if I can get wins here or there. Um, and I think even Ron Dennis had sort of said, well, uh, you know, he was paying him so much by then. It was money that he could have been spent spent on developing the car. They didn't know whether it was going to turn up until the Thursday or Friday of that of that weekend sometimes. Um, so it wasn't the same as dr- being the driving force to win a championship with Honda and McLaren. I think it was in ninety in 1991. So that's I, I think I, I'd probably put 91 even ahead of, of 93, although, of that is a very famous campaign of his too. Will we be getting a, a
1: 1993 special in two years' time, Kev?
0: uh quite quite probably what else was happening there I would have to, I would love to have a think about that yeah almost certainly yeah
1: Damien, coming back to you you wrote a dedicated feature on the Williams performance over the course of the 1991 season for the magazine this week so can can you please talk us through just what a year this represented for the team considering what had previously come before as it sort of rose up in the 1980s and then the steamrolling success it enjoyed shortly after the end of this season
2: yeah as you say Alex you know, after that season, they went on this run of five constructors' titles in six years. And you think about the nineties now, and it's it's the Williams decade. You know, um, the eighties was where they became established as one of the the grandy teams of Formula One, but it was really the nineties that uh, kind of wrote the Williams legend. I always think, um, uh, and it was an interesting time. There, it was a transition, still in a transitional year, really, um, for them, where they um, they'd lost their front running status with when Honda. Um, had left them to go to McLaren for uh, for '88. They'd had that season with the Judd V8, which was just a um, a make do engine for that season. Um, the Renault relationship had started in '89, and by '91, that Renault V10 uh, was really uh, on song and was now becoming the, the the dominant engine in in Formula One, which is you know I think directly why Honda felt they had to go to a V12 to combat uh, the the V10. Um, But you've got to also remember that Adrian Newey had only started at Williams in 1990. um, And it's that partnership, I think, between Newey and Patrick Head that formed um, that incredible um, alliance that that was the, the, the driving force of the Williams success story. Uh, through the '90s, but they were still finding their feet in '91, and you saw a lot of technical problems with that car early in the season. My, my feature in the magazine talks about that. The, the transmission was the, the the Achilles' heel for the first um, quarter of the season, certainly, um, and it took them quite a while to get on top of that. Uh, and that's uh, it. Seemed that that kind of maybe where where's the, where the title was lost. Although, of course, Mansell then came back strongly uh, in the summer. Um, but um, one question that, that Kev asked me in my commission for this uh, story was, um, you know, where did they lose it? Whose fault was it? Um, was it Mansell's fault because he, he uh, dropped a few clangers that season? Um, or was it the team? And my conclusion really was that it was down to, to both of them. Um, they both, uh, both team and driver, made errors. Um, and um, I think McLaren and Senna... Um, certainly McLaren dropped, dropped a couple of uh, bombshells as well during that year. But overall, they made fewer mistakes. And they were fine in their feet, Williams, I think, in that season. And 92, obviously, was uh, where everything changed for them. If you ask Patrick Head about Nigel Mansell now, um, he, we all know that Mansell struggled to... Face up to any weaknesses or admit to any any uh, any mistakes. It was never. It just wasn't in his psyche to do that. Um, but there is a there is a genuine respect, I think, um, amongst those who worked with Mansell. And, and I know Patrick has a, an immense immense respect for Nigel. Uh, he knew that out of the car, very difficult man, difficult guy to manage. Um, uh, he was pushing the team, which isn't always a bad thing, obviously. But it was uh, it wasn't always um, with a with a positive Kind of um, outlook on, on things and it could be quite quite disruptive um, but I think they always had a lot of respect for the effort that he put in in the car um, and his pure ability and the, the Canada mistake is, is quite an interesting one that um, Patrick explains in my article and um, that it was actually a, a, a problem with uh, the battery on on the Williams was too small uh, because Mansell let the revs drop um, below two thousand rpm uh the battery basically wasn't strong enough to keep the engine running. Um so it it, it was his mistake and it was a stupid thing to do, but there was a, a a car element to it, which um Patrick, being Patrick, was very honest about.
0: Yeah, just to just to back up what Damo is saying about the sort of the kind of fledgling operation with the um unreliability but the speed, if you look at those um the sixteen races that season, I, I think you can say that there are ten where the Williams is definitely the quicker car, which I'd say in a normal season you would say is enough to be is enough to win the championships. Of those ten, um, they lose three: one in Canada due to a combination of yeah Mansell and the and the battery problem. Um, they uh, lose in uh, Portugal because of their own wheel falling off. So that's a team error, if you like, and they they lose in Hungary uh because I think of a Senna sort of virtuosity, I guess you could throw in Belgium as well. That was a bit of a crazy race where a number of different cars could have could have won that one. Um whereas the the six that Williams didn't have a clear advantage, all six, um, yeah, you know, if you put Karen to one side, yeah, you know, Senna and McLaren, that's what they win. Um they, so they they make a much better strike rate of their the races where they're competitive than than Williams do. Um and of course, the other factor in this we haven't even mentioned his name yet, but Ricardo Petresi in the first half of the year certainly was very very quick particularly in qualifying kept out qualifying Mansell. I still think mansell was by and large the, the quicker racer even on the days where Perezzi had out qualified and Mansell was usually quicker but at McLaren, you've got there's no there's no question who the number one driver is whereas uh, for the first part of the uh, of ninety one Petrazzi keeps out qualifying his number one.
2: I had a very amusing evening at the Autosport awards um Oh, I can't remember, it must be about 10 odd ten years ago. And we had Mansell and Patrese in the room, and they sat me between the two of them on the same table. Um, and uh, it was hilarious. Mansell was on fantastic form, he was very funny, um, and he had his family around him. Um, Ricardo, I think, was on his own and was a, you know, the gentleman that. He, everyone always talks about just very, um, very charming uh, and debonair and um, great company. And Nigel just spent the whole evening talking about 92. And hardly mentioned '91 at all. And uh, I think Ricardo at one point said, oh, you know, remember the the first part of '91," just to sort of uh, remind him that it wasn't a complete walkover during their time together. Um, but they 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 actually got on very well. But Ricardo did roll his eyes a few times, I think, during the course of the evening. It was uh, it was quite entertaining.
1: And Damien, speaking, you know, when you're speaking to Patrick Head, what what is his thinking on the sort of the team orders debate at Williams that year? Because as you say, you know. Patrese's performances and of performances as well meant that team didn't didn't you know the, the, it gave him problems in terms of imposing team orders early on, but then they eventually do it as the season comes towards an end. But was that a, you know did, did they really cost themselves points? Were there things they could have been differently? What's that? What's what's Head's reflection on it now?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Unprompted, he did raise team orders and said that um, they you know they didn't. Uh, have orders and that that cost Nigel points, but to be fair to Ricardo Patrese, I think that um, on merit he was outperforming Nigel, and it was at the start of the season. And you know who knew what was going to happen? It could have gone that Ricardo could have got on a run of results and suddenly would have been in the, in the in the title hunt. So I think at that stage of the season, and particularly in in nineteen ninety one. Um we hadn't had quite so many team orders controversies at that stage. I, I don't think there was any any expectation that they should have um asked Ricardo to move over for, for Mansell. Um so I think he's being a little bit harsh on himself actually <laughs> on that one for 91.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that completely. If you look at the, the championship uh table, Mansell doesn't overtake Patrese until the French Grand Prix by one point, and you're almost halfway through the season. So uh, you know, I think it would have been a pretty unreasonable and very harsh on Patrese at that stage to, to start asking him to before that to ask him to move out of the way, and then later on when they did have the opportunity and Patrese had had some bad luck, he'd also terrible at some of his starts were terrible that year as well. Um, later on, so for example in the in the in the Portuguese Grand Prix, once Mansell has got up to second, Patrese does move out of the way and, and let Mansell through, and that that should have been a win. So that one was a Williams win, but it was the wrong Williams because they. Yeah, you know, one of Williams's weaknesses at the time, I think, was their pit stops were never as good as McLaren, very rarely as good as McLarens, and obviously, and that that's the famous one where they only managed to attach three of, three of them properly. Um, so they, but up until that point, they had got Patrese out of the way, and that was the right decision at that point in the season. But yeah, I think Patrick's very harsh on himself uh, to say that they should have done it earlier.
2: And the other interesting bit of context, I think, on on that is that. Um... You look at where Mansell was at the early part of '91. he was coming into Williams from two slightly damaging years at Ferrari. You know, the first year had been good for him personally, but the second year certainly wasn't, against Prost, um, because he was basically beaten out of Ferrari pretty much, you know, and he, he flounced out, obviously um, in, a, in a strop, but the, the, the fact is that Prost outperformed him. And um, his uh, worth in Formula One terms wasn't as high. As it had been, I mean, Frank Williams, you know, wanted Senna by this stage. He was after Senna. Um, Senna recommitted to McLaren, and of course, um, uh, Charles's mate was was well in in line for the Williams drive. Had signed a contract, Lacey would sign a contract uh, for ninety one, and then and then went with his heart and chose Ferrari instead. Um, so, you know, Mansell, I think, was quite vulnerable in those early months of his return to Williams, and it's interesting that Patrese got the better of him um, at that time. Of course, I think it says a lot about his character that Mansell came back in the summer and did what he did. Those three wins were terrific in the summer and um, he obviously finished the season on top. Indeed. Well,
1: Kev, let's talk about Ferrari. I'm, I'm coming to you because uh, the, the amount of times you've done an amusing Ferrari rant in the office about their uh, recent seasons uh, is, 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 pretty, is pretty famous at autosport. Um, but 1991... You know, a real season where they had a lot of hopes after what had just come before. And it was disastrous to the point where Prost hated it so much, he airs his views and loses his job. So, yeah, tell us what happened at Ferrari 91, please.
0: Well, I think that they thought that the six four one from 1990, which which Prost had done a brilliant job with, actually. You know, that was a that was an epic title fight that deserved something better than the Suzuka finale it got, um, or Suzuka decider it got. And they kind of just sort of tweaked it a little bit to go into ninety-one. They thought, yeah, well, the car's pretty good. We'll we'll go in with that. Uh and that, that will start well. And they had another car, the six four three, which is a bit more of a you yeah, a bit more of a proper new car, if you like, waiting in the wing. So they felt pretty confident. And and remember, Lacey set fast at lap at Phoenix, Prost was second, Senna did win by quite a margin, but it at that point it didn't look too disastrous. But as uh, as the season got going, they just felt you know, further and further behind with that. It wasn't particularly reliable, uh, lots of engine problems. Uh and then they brought the 643 out for the French Grand Prix, and uh it took it took quite a good performance from Mansell to to nick that race off Prost. He had to pass him twice, uh, because Prost got off the line well, um led the race. Mansell passed him, and then a Williams pit stop meant that he was behind the Ferrari again. Uh, and he had to pass him again, uh, and they would you know they beat they beat center fair and square. So at that point, you think right, okay, now Ferrari's season really starts, um, but it never it, it never really got going. The car was difficult um, when the fuel came off. It was actually quite decent, I think, on a heavy fuel load, but wasn't very good on low fuel load. It wasn't very reliable. I think Prost got more and more frustrated um, and started saying things that uh, the Ferrari didn't like, and of course, in the end, they. They sacked him before the end of the season, thereby getting rid of their best asset. Because um, if you look at how how long it took them to win another championship, they didn't win another championship until '99 with the constructors' title, uh, and Prost won his next driver's title two years later. So, yeah, it was um, it was in the middle of the political shambles before De Montezemolo and Jean Toc got hold of it, and then and then started the revival, which culminated in getting hold of Mark Schumacher and. Uh, and Ross Brawn in the second half of the 90s. Well, I mean
1: 1991 was also a year of great political drama in Formula 1. You've got Jean Marie Balestre losing the FISA presidential election to Max Mosley and you think of uh, all the big changes that happened in Formula 1 uh, after that. But it also that, that 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 the outcome of that election also led to Senna making quite a feisty press conference uh, appearance at Suzuka a year after everything that had famously gone down at the same track a year before. So Damien, what what did you make of that considering, you know, what what you spoke about earlier about 1991, feeling a bit fresher, a bit better after the bitterness that had come in the previous seasons, and that sort of sort of brings us full circle back to Senna. What was he? What was what, what was going on in terms of what
2: he said there? It was really frustrating because um, he'd just won a world championship in in some style and on merit against a, a faster car, and here he was directly afterwards pulling everything back to the same old uh, dramas and things that a lot of people, myself included, had kind of grown weary of and just, did, just didn't care anymore. You know? And um, it was a shame, I think, that he chose that moment to, uh, to attack Balest and um, dredge it all back up again. And I think there was, at the time, there was a real hope that Mosley uh, was going to be a breath of fresh air, that a lot of the politics and a lot of the controversies would, would drift away didn't quite turn out that way. Um, but, you know, certainly at that early stage, um, there was there was a lot of optimism, I think, that um, things were changing for the better in Formula 1. The, you know, blessed, belonged in the past. Um, and I think Senna should have left him there.
0: Yeah, I would just... Um, I, I, this wouldn't happen very often, but I will speak in defence of, of Mosley slightly, in that although there were certainly some, um, how shall I put this, dubious moments of his tenure um, at the FIA... Um, he was a thousand times better than Bales. I mean, if you read some of the accounts of even just driver briefings with him in uh, before Grand Prix, I mean, it was pretty remarkable that he didn't really understand the sport and he certainly didn't understand drivers. Um, and I don't think those are criticisms you would make of Max Mosley, who I think at key points, such as after Senna's death, in '94, you know, he did he did he did sort of stand up for motorsport and take things in in the right direction. I think maybe later on there were things he did that uh, perhaps we wouldn't be so keen on. But yeah, I I agree with Damo that it did feel like a breath, breath of fresh air, and it was very odd of Senna to pick that moment. I think he felt off the leash because Balestra had gone. But it's a little bit like Donington '93 when he had you know the the race that a lot of people regard as his greatest uh he took took the took that moment instead of uh, of being sort of magnanimous to take pot shots at prost in in the press conference so you know senna was a yeah, remarkable man and a fantastic driver but he did have these you know he he was a flawed genius i think that that phrase probably applies to him almost more than any other racing driver really well
1: i wondered at this point if we could if we could contrast compare uh, 1991 to current Formula One. It was. It really struck me as I was reading through uh, the features that you guys have produced and the other stuff that's gone in the magazine this week. It really reminded me. And Kevin, I know you've got a different year in mind of the 2018 Formula One season. In that, in that year, Mercedes sees off a resurgent Ferrari that repeatedly caused itself problems. The big difference being that since 2018, Ferrari has been even worse. Okay, it was good in in 2019. It was controversial power unit, but it's gone it's gone way down as opposed to Williams which was was only on the up and, and went on to tremendous things so yeah Kev where you know how can you I mean also just 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 thinking as, as everyone was talking on this podcast you know there's such a difference in in the the lack of reliability drama that Formula One has now there's no instances of uh of cars failing because of um regularly failing that is because of what happens with the gearboxes or for letting the revs go too low and that impacting the battery uh which I, I actually thought was uh was was interesting in the um Damien, in your feature, it's mentioned that at that moment, that's when uh, Mansell was celebrating what he was going on to, the victory he was going on to get. And that, you know, that, that, that highlights how it was a combination of the driver and the team problem in 1991. Um, you know, but also, we don't, don't see that at all in terms of cars randomly failing, cars running out of fuel like the McLaren did on a couple of occasions and the issues that, that the Ferrari had. Um, so yeah, Kev, how can we compare this season, this famous season of 30 years ago to what Formula One is today?
0: I think the, the twenty eighteen analogy works up to a point in that uh the gap between Mercedes often, and Ferrari often my analogies work up to a point and then they fall off. But anyway, sorry, do carry on. <laughs> That's because you're so young. It's all right. We can help you out with this. Um so yeah, so twenty eighteen works up to a point in that it's uh <laughs> in that it's the gap between the Mercedes and the Ferrari actually is very similar in terms of percentage raw pace uh to the gap between McLaren and Williams uh, in ninety-one. Um and I think that Lewis Hamilton uh in twenty eighteen, I think in the first half of his season when Ferrari was quicker was uh optimizing points, uh, not giving anything away. You know, I think it I, I did a list just for my own amusement, which I might get round to writing one day the, of the of the top uh greatest, you know, the greatest F one campaigns, title winning campaigns, and Senna's ninety one and Hamilton's twenty eighteen were were both on it. Well, the year that I would put forward, and I hope I'm sure that Charles and Damien will agree that this is recent, but you might think that it's quite a long time ago, um, is 2009 where you had Braun start off with all those wins. Jensen Button wrapped up the points. but the red Bull the Red Bull was the best car without the double diffuser trick. Adrian Newey, I think is still cross about that. Um, and uh, once they Red Bull got on a run. That was the fastest car over, over the whole season. Red Bull actually was the quicker car. Nobody remembers that, but it was. The reason they lost is partly is very similar. Button built up the points early on. He took points later on, um, in you know when he needed to. And Red Bull had silly things happen. Vettel crashed at, at Monaco. They had silly tactical errors because they weren't used to running at the front in quite the same way. A little bit like Williams had been in ninety one. So I would say that two thousand nine is probably. A closer uh, comparison, although uh, as much as I'm a fan of Jensen Button, I think he probably did give away more points than Senna did in
1: '91. Damien, I wanted to, I wanted to just just ask you before we, we go on and talk about other championships away from Formula One. I mean, Autosport, we're we're always a bit reluctant to engage with the whole. Better back then vibe that, that lots of people have. It, it's there throughout the eras. It's not just a thing that suddenly popped up now. But it is also at the same time important to look back at what's come before and see if we can learn in lessons or or things that might be useful for for everything that comes in the future. Otherwise, you just end up in a horrible cycle of uh, of history repeating itself. And I, I don't mean to imply that's going on in certain bits of politics around the world, but it probably is. Anyway. Um, is there anything about that 1991 season that we're remembering and celebrating uh, on this episode and in the magazine that maybe Formula One could look at and think, "Oh, that's something that maybe not necessarily bring it back, but something that maybe that's something that the championship has lost."
2: I'm not a big one for comparing and contrasting eras. I think you 91 was a great season in its own right. Uh, it's history now, and I, I love Formula One now. I think it's great at the moment. Um, I don't think. Uh, it's in that much trouble. I think the only thing I'd say about things that Formula 1 can learn from is um, we don't get enough drivers going to prison, as we did in 91. I think, uh, I think that was uh, that was quite an entertaining little uh, moment, wasn't it, when Bertrand Gasho was sent to prison and uh, opened the door for Michael Schumacher to get his Formula One debut. So, um, yeah, uh, can you imagine that happening today with social media and uh, the way the world is now? You know, it would be unbelievable, wouldn't it?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's fair. I think probably what you want is something between what you've got now and what you had then, because some of the teams at the back were awful. I mean, uh, our technical editor Jake Boxall has done a a feature in the magazine on the six teams that failed to score a point, and some of them were very unfortunate not to score a point, and and are kind of in the sort of the Williams Haas position now. But some of them were. I mean, what were they doing on an F one grid? So I think maybe somewhere between the two would be good. But the thing that I would I would say that, that it most reminded me of watching the season of you is different engine configurations, V eights, V tens, V twelves. Um, yeah, we, we know why that they, they can't do that now. You know, it, it got to the point where, you know, it was getting too expensive. They had sort of had to pick one and there was always gonna be an optimum one. But at that point you still had the contrasting sounds. Um, I personally think the cars look good. I know the sort of beauty is in the eye of the beholder, um, but I did a, last year. I did a piece on the, the best looking F1 cars. The Jordan One Nine One was was in the list, um, and the only reason that the probably the Williams wasn't in it was because the Jordan was because I wanted to try and spread the joy. So yeah, for me, those cars, big slicks, none of this groove tire nonsense that came in in ninety eight. Um, you know, nice and wide, not too many aero flicks. I think the cars looked and sounded good, basically
2: last little point on this I think um just really just following on from what Charles said really I think uh you look back at 91 now you look at in-car camera footage from 91 or um it's just so raw and I think Formula 1 sometimes loses that that raw element these days and interestingly I thought last season it got back some of that that sort of raw um pleasure that we took from it in the past um because it went back to some of the um the hairy circuits and um it was you didn't quite know what to expect week in, week out, and it became much less predictable. Um, so I think maybe that's uh something that Formula One could learn is uh is try not to be so predictable as it, it certainly wasn't in, in those days. Kev,
1: uh, it wasn't just Formula One that had famous seasons in 1991. Uh, why was the year notable for the World Sports Car Championship and also the title battle in British Formula Three?
0: Well, I have a bone to pick with all sport readers from 1991 because they foolishly. Uh, voted the Jordan One Nine One as the racing car of the year in our all-sport Awards at the end of the season, uh, when clearly the car that they should have voted for was the Jaguar XJR Fourteen, absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal sports car. I'd have it up there right as one of the one of the all time great sports cars. Um, rewrote the rule books. Um, yeah, it was it two to four seconds quicker than the opposition. It was a Ross Braun applying F1 thinking to sports cars. And now I will admit I was of, of an age where these things made quite an impact, and I was at Silverstone in 1991 uh, watching those cars. Um, Derek Warwick and Tayo Farby disappeared into the distance, and Martin Brundle, fortunately for those watching, had a had a problem and had to charge through the field, setting lap times that would have put him in sort of the mid grid midfield. In fact, I think he put he did a quicker lap in that than he done in his than he did in his F1 car. And he's Brabham later in the year. So it was a phenomenal car. It looked fantastic. Uh, and it completely uh, overturned the Mercedes advantage in in, in sports car racing. Uh, they'd had the previous two years and they had a very good driver lineup. that included Mark Schumacher. And it forced Peugeot into revamping their entire car and their entire approach mid-season. And Derek Warwick, who drove both cars, the Jaguar and then the Peugeot, won the World Sports Car Championship the following year, Said that the xgr fourteen was 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 better than the car that came after it. It was only a matter of tyres and development money that that made the difference. So yeah, an all time great, uh, uh, you know, great racing car. Um, so yeah, it's a it's, it's quite a key year for sports car racing, and of course, famously Mazda won Le Mans, uh, the first Japanese manufacturer to do so, despite the amount of money that both Toyota and Nissan had already thrown at it. And British Formula Three. Well, British F3. This is um, um, uh, obviously Marcus Simmons has written the piece uh, in the magazine covering this. But basically, it was a, a Rubens Barrichello, uh, David Coulthard fight before they got to F1. Really, really close, close season. There were some. There were various other, um, you know, good drives in it as well. But they're the two that that, that, that the people remember. And Barrichello tended to be the fastest, um, but he messed up a few starts, and Coulthard was probably the better racer. Um so it was quite a good uh, championship fight until um uh, Coulthard had a had a bit of bad luck, unreliability towards the end, and in the end um Barrichello won out. So um yeah, it was uh, there was some quite quite good motorsport moments elsewhere. You mentioned earlier on the World Rally championship, Carlos Sainz, newark Hawk Anken and uh, had a fantastic battle where they dominated the championship, won five rounds each, uh, decided at the last round, Lancer versus Toyota. Um, so, yeah, there was, there was quite a lot going on elsewhere in motorsport in 1991.
2: The thing that I remember from 91, I've been trying to rack my brains about the 91 British Grand Prix to think if I could remember anything specific from that. And I can't remember very much about the race itself. Um, but what I do remember is the um, the Jaguar XJR 15 one make race um, because they had uh, a race at Monaco, a race at Silverstone, a race at Spa with a bunch of um, uh, sort of well-known big name celebrity drivers um and it was a complete crash fest and every lap they came past me at stowe i think the order was different and um i saw fanjo win at silverstone because juan Manuel fanjo the second won the race so um I, you know i didn't realize i was that old there's a lot of fondness for that that era and i've got happy memories of formula 3 that year the btcc was mega that year as well with the um the original last year for the original shaped m3 which i always loved the only thing i'd pick up on kev that i disagree with you on is that um ross Brown didn't rewrite the rule book and sports car racing that year i think you find bernie eccleston did and uh and completely ruined it by, by going down the formula yeah. one route so um that's the only thing i'd argue with but um like you i've also got a, a soft spot for that car
0: i i can't deny three and a half litre normally aspirated regulations um Actually there were quite a few quite scary stories about how that happened um and was allowed to happen, which um, is another podcast. But um yeah, the three and a half litre normally aspirated regulations for sports car racing did kill it off. Um, you yeah, know, within two years it was it was dead in the water, really. Um but just to pick up your, your point on the, Damien's point on the British touring cars, of course that was the first year of the of the two litre regulations. We just had four seasons of the Ford C R S five hundred w- winning quite literally everything. Except the championship because of their silly class rules that they had then. Uh, and that was coming to the end of its homologation. And and um, yeah, a, few, a few of the key key figures, including um, Andy Rouse, who was kind of the, you know, the king of the RS500s, really, um, came up with these new two-litre regulations. And Will Hoy won the championship in 1991 in the BMW M3. And that was really the start of the super touring era, really, which didn't just take over british touring cars it spread around around the world even um, in america got a couple of seasons of super touring before they got bored of it let us know what other years you'd like us to talk about um yeah i'm very yeah we've done we've done quite a range um since about 2011 i think we started off in in the 80s we went as far back as 73 um we've won 2000 um yeah let us know let us know what years you'd like us to to look back on because it's always it's always good fun Thank you very much for coming on the podcast
1: uh, tonight. And of course, uh, thanks to everybody listening along. Now, just before we go, we'd like to remind you that the latest issue of Autosport magazine came out on Thursday and will be available on the supermarket shelves and in newsagents, as well as on the doormats of subscribers. There'll be a new issue of the magazine you can pick up every Thursday packed full of news, analysis, and the usual stunning photography. And of course, if you want unlimited access to Autosport from the comfort of your home, visit autosport.com slash plus to find out how to subscribe to our digital package. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Music.